Hello again to everyone. We're thankful for another opportunity to uh, look into the Word of God with you. Thankful for you taking your time to listen to us. We hope and pray that through the Word of God and the Spirit, we could be a help and a strengthener unto you, that your soul could be more and more established on the doctrines of the Word of God, and that the Lord could help us through His Word. Um, we've been looking at Elijah and Elisha, and we got down, we're in 1 Kings 19, we got down to verse 19 last time, where we're going to be introduced to the man Elisha. Up to this point, the story has been all about Elijah. God has just spoken to Elijah and said, Go and anoint, anoint Haziel to be king of Syria, Jehu king of Israel, and anoint Elisha to be the prophet in your room. Because I'm going to bring judgment through these three men. They are going to bring vengeance, destruction, and death upon those that have rejected and neglected to hear my word. And so Elijah goes, and the Bible says here in verse 19, um, So he departed thence, and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen before him, and he with the twelve. And Elijah passed by him, and cast his mantle upon him. So we're the first place now that we find Elisha, the great prophet, the man with a double portion of Elijah's spirit, we're introduced to him and he's out in the field farming. He's got 12 yoke of oxen. And, you know, I, I have heard it said that he is plowing himself with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. A yoke is a pair of oxen. And so you would have a pair and a plow behind that he would have 24 oxen before him. And that that could be the case. Uh, it also could be that he, at his farm he had 12 plows and there were 11 others out there, each with a yoke of oxen plowing, and Elisha was plowing with, uh, with one of those 12 yoke. Uh, either way, either way, this is a great farm. Elisha is a man of means to have what he's got here, and we're going to be made aware that, that this is his farm, and he's not just a, <clears throat> a worker out on it. We're going to see that it does belong to him. But we find him out in the field, and he's laboring. He's working. So this was not a man that was out studying to be a preacher, to be a prophet. He wasn't at the school of the prophets trying to learn. He wasn't, um, he wasn't exalting himself. He wasn't down at Jerusalem at the temple. God's going to come and call a man that's a farmer that's working out in his field to try to raise food to live on and to make living from. An unexpected call. A call to someone, first of all, that doesn't look like has any business being called and a call that comes at a time that Elisha did not see nor understand coming. Now this is just, this is the way God operates. And we're going to look at a few examples of others in the Word of God, uh, starting with Abraham, who was in his home country at Ur of the Chaldees, life going on that day as it had every day of his life, 
But God's going to come and say, Abraham, get out of here. A man down there with a bunch of idolaters, a man living with an idolatrous family, a man nowhere near Canaan or the promised land, and God's going to show up unexpected one day and call to him. Moses out in the wilderness of sin. He's out there keeping the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, and he turns and sees a burning bush. And there God is going to speak to him and call him to go down to Egypt and to rescue his people. Now of, of all the people that God's going to call and enable to go, a man out in the wilderness with a flock of sheep would seem to be the last. And Moses had no expectation that God was coming by at that time. What about Jacob? As Jacob had just robbed the blessing from his brother Esau, and uh, his mother said, look, Rebekah said, you've got to get out of here, and you're going to have to go. Go to my family's place. And so he is running away from home, running from the wrath of Esau, his brother, and he comes to a place and there God appears and he sees the ladder. We call it Jacob's ladder. But we see angel, he sees angels ascending and descending upon it. Now we know in the New Testament, by the words of Jesus himself, that that was Jesus that Jacob saw there. And Jacob said, I'm going to call this place Bethel the house of God. And so Jacob, while he's running away from home and in a place of darkness, God appears to him there. And Noah, Noah, a man that's just like everybody else, going on with life, and the grace of God finds Noah and speaks to him. In Judges, a man named Gideon that God's going to wrought great victory through we find him in Judges 6 and verse 11. Gideon is threshing wheat. He's out there separating the, the grain from the chaff, but he's doing it hidden away from the enemy. The enemy's ruling over Israel there. They're taking all of their food. So Gideon's out hiding, trying to thresh enough wheat that they can live on. Not some big courageous man. Not a man that was brought up and trained in warfare. Not a man that's head and shoulders above the rest like Saul, but just a little fellow that's out there trying to hide and get enough food for him and his family to live on. That's the man that God's going to call to come and rescue Israel out from the hand of the enemy. In Psalm 78, in reference to David, God says this, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn there and read it so, so I can get the exact words of what he says about David. Psalm 78, verse number 70. He chose David also, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the ewes, great with young, he brought him to feed Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. God didn't go get a great army man. He didn't take the captain of the host of the army of Israel. He came to a man, the youngest of all of his brethren, that's out in the field, the last one thought of by the father and by all of his brothers. He's out there keeping the sheep, and that's the one that God's going to call to be the king, and not just the king, the greatest king that Israel ever known, naturally speaking, He's going to bring him out of the sheepfolds. Amos, I believe this is a beautiful scripture here. Amos the prophet who is prophesying the, the judgment of God upon Israel in, 
uh, Amos chapter 7 and verse 14, this is what Amos says. Then answered Amos and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son, but a herdman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. And the Lord took me as I followed the flock and said, Go prophesy unto my people Israel. Another man out in the field, laboring, doing his job, unexpected, unprepared for the call, and yet the call of God comes. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 18, And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. 21. And going on from thence, he saw two brethren, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, in a ship with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. In Matthew chapter number 9, verse number 9. Jesus passed forth from thence. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. And he saith unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. Now, you think about these, these five men here. Simon Peter, Andrew, James, and John, fishermen, uneducated by even the word of the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin court in the book of Acts. These are uneducated, unlearned, ignorant men that do not know or are able to communicate like they are. God didn't go to the Sanhedrin, to the elders. He didn't go to the Levites. He didn't go to the high priest. He didn't go down to the temple to call, but he went down to the sea and he called the lowest and most ignorant and unlearned of the group. He called Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And here in Matthew 9, here's a publican, a tax collector named Levi. This is Matthew. And he's there collecting taxes. The, the least thought of group of people in all of Israel were those that worked for the Roman government taking in taxes and cut, taking their cut out of it as well. The, the least thought of and God's going to come and call him. Now he's not calling them either while they go to the temple to make a sacrifice. God doesn't wait on them to start seeking him first. God calls them where they are and calls them out of that place and into following him. So over and over and over again, God's calling those that you wouldn't expect to be a servant of God. He's calling those not that look and, and feel like the right thing in man's wisdom. And he's not calling them at a time that they're seeking after God. But God is appearing to these and calling them it's by his choice. I mean, did he not choose the 12 uh, disciples? I don't know how a man could argue with that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 now, this is what God says. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. So this, this thought then, that everybody's getting called and people are choosing what they're going to do with the call. I think this verse right here, I don't know how you're going to explain what this is saying. 
Because the word of God says, not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble are called. They don't receive the calling that you have received. That's what he's saying to the church at Corinth. Look, there's not many mighty men that's been called like you've been called. So who is called then? Verse 27, But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. So God has chosen to call and he's chosen to call the weak and the beggarly and the ignorant and the unlearned and those that you wouldn't expect, those that you would say, why, there's no way that they can do any good. That no doubt is what they thought of Peter and James and John and Andrew. That's what they thought of Matthew, the publican. That's what they thought of Paul the apostle. The church no doubt thought that of Paul as he was following the Jewish religion. These people, they can't do anything for God. They're, they're too ignorant. They're too, uh, they're too evil. They're too sinful. They're too black. They, they're unable to serve God and be of any benefit. But God chose to call them and he chose not to call the Pharisees. He chose not to call the wise and the mighty and the strong and the educated and the good and the moral and the religious. He didn't call them. He called that that was weak. You know why? This is what he says. That no flesh should glory in his presence. Now when when Peter, James, and John are going to appear before the Sanhedrin, maybe it was just Peter and John there that's going to appear, they're going to say these men are ignorant and unlearned men, but they've been with Jesus. You know who got all the glory? The Lord got the glory. And that's what's going to happen in the work of God. So here we see, we see in Kings a man named Elisha, not a prophet, not the son of a prophet, not a man studying to be a prophet, not a man down at the temple worshiping God, not one that's down there praying, seeking after God. God's going to come to this man while he's farming and call him into this that he's got no idea how to do. Ain't that the way God works? God calls man not when he's doing good. He calls man when he's a sinner, when he's dead and trespasses and sins, when he's, uh, when he's in darkness and blind and does not know the truth. That's when God calls a man to come unto him. And it's always the call of God that comes first. Man doesn't come to God to be called. God calls, and then man comes to God. So you, you notice that that unexpected call. And this is, this is what the Bible says. Elijah passed by and cast his mantle upon him. Not one word is going to be said here. Elijah does not say one word to Elisha. He passes by and casts that mantle. And you know, that mantle, I believe, uh, uh, significant a picture of the man of God and the power of God that rests upon him. But the mantle's going to go from Elijah to Elisha. So he's not begging him to come and follow him. 
He's not up, he's not up saying, look, Elisha, we'll do you good. We'll bless your heart. If you don't do this, then this is going to happen. He is not trying to talk him into it in the least bit. A lot of talking into goes on today that that is not of God. And we'll look in the next verse even farther at this. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 now, just the next chapter down from where we just were, <clears throat> Paul says this, I came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the wisdom of God. So Paul says, I did not entice you. I realize this, I, I'm, I, I've looked at this scripture a few times beforehand, but I believe this is weighty. This is very important in the day that we're living in. It's We're trying and churches are trying and Preachers are trying to entice man to come to the altar. Well, this call of God, it is not with enticing words of man's wisdom. If someone is going to come to God, it's not going to be because Elijah is going to talk him into it. That man talking him into it, it never produces a work of God. What produces the work of God is the call that is from God. And friends, if God's not calling them, if God doesn't draw them, it does not matter whether they come to the altar or not. Coming to the altar, saying a prayer, getting baptized, none of that is of any value if God is not the author of it. But man in his pride, he wants to be able to lay claim to something. Well, so-and-so came to the altar. Well, if they didn't come because God called, they came for the wrong reason. They were enticed. They were drew of man. Man's wisdom and man's words got them to come, and there will not be a work of God produced from that type of movement. This was an unenticing call of man, but it was an effectual call. Now, if somebody walks by you now and they've got a jacket on and they just take that jacket, that mantle, they throw that on you. Now, what are you going to think? Are you going to think in your mind, this man, he, he wants me to follow him. I mean, that, that's what happened here. Elisha is in the field. He's laboring and working. Elijah's going to pass by and cast that mantle. And Elisha knows, he knows what that means. Now, how does he come to that realization? It's not by the words of Elijah. It's not that there was a note hidden in it. I believe if there was, God would have written that in his word and let us know. God's let us know exactly what we needed to. So I, the only explanation is 
that God was working in the heart of Elisha, calling him. There was an effectual inward call of God to this man. It was not the call of Elijah that's going to move him. It's not Elijah trying to plead. The, the church and, and man of himself has no business pleading and trying to get man to come to an altar. No business in that. We produce twofold more children of hell by trying to do that ourselves. Preach the word and God will call who he chooses, who he sees fit. God's doing the work. And so there was a work going on inside of Elisha. There had to be, or he would not have known what the casting of this mantle went. And I believe you can say that for every example we looked at in the beginning. There was an effectual call going on in Matthew and in Peter, James, John, and Andrew. There was a working going on in their heart that as Jesus says, come and follow me, there's a revelation inward of what he's saying, what all that encompasses, what that means. Jesus didn't entice them. He called them and God worked in their heart to come. When God's working, they'll come. Guaranteed. I won't have to stand for 20 minutes I won't have to have three songs sung. I won't have to do a big drawn out invitation. I won't have to call them by name to try to get them to move and get them to come to an altar. I won't have to do any of that. When God's calling them, they'll come and they'll answer the call. Now when I begin to throw in myself and I begin to try to beg and plead with man, we're, we're trying to do the work of God for God. It's not my job. It's not my place. Now this is, this is against tradition. Tradition has brought us to a place today that man has the ability to do it all himself. We can get them to an altar. We can win them to the Lord. We can get them to repent. They can choose what they do. They can choose to be saved. Just make your decision. Just come to God anytime. And though different men reject parts of that, yet they all contradict themselves when it comes time to make the altar call. There's no need for enticing. God, when he calls, he'll call them. They'll come. In Acts chapter 1, you talk about an effectual call now. A call that is alive and working in the inward man. That's what's going on with Elisha. That's what's going to go on with Paul here. In Acts chapter 9, Saul's going on with his life. And you talk about an example of the call of God at an unexpected time <clears throat> and to one that the church didn't expect would be called. God's going to appear to Paul and speak to him and the Bible says those that were with him they didn't know what was being said. This was Paul, his individual calling. And it was as he appears to him Saul says, Who art thou, Lord? Now I'm telling you, when, when God makes an appearance in the heart of a man, they will recognize who he is 
and his authority and his power. There's no respect for God today because man, we don't see him. But I guarantee you, here's Paul, Paul the man who thought he was serving God and doing God a service. When God appears to him, he's brought down. And he says, Who art thou, Lord? I'm Jesus, whom thou persecutest. There's a revelation here. And, you know, you tell me. You think Paul could have rejected this? I mean, he's going to be blinded. He's scared slapped to death. He now knows who God is. He knows he's guilty. He knows he's in danger of the judgment. He's under such a weight that he can't do anything but sit in a room and pray and wait on somebody to come and help him. No, I tell you, he's going to receive an effectual call. It's the same call that Elisha's going to receive. But it's not after the wisdom of man. It's performed by the power of God. And so, verse 20, and we're back now in 1 Kings 19, and verse 20. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow thee. And he said unto him, Go back again, for what have I done to thee? So the, the words now, left. So he's going to leave the oxen. That means to loosen or to relinquish. So he's going to let loose his oxen. He's got no intention of going back to the field now. And he's going to run after. He's going to run up behind. So Elijah, Elijah passed by, cast the mantle, kept on going. He didn't stop and wait. He didn't stop and beg. He didn't stop and hold his hands out. He didn't continue on for 30 minutes trying to get Elisha to make a decision. Elijah cast the mantle and he went on. I know this is against tradition, but I'm just about to this place that at the end of a service, there's really no need for an altar call and a song. We ought to cast the mantle, preach the word of God, and go on. And friends, if God calls, they'll run. Elisha is going to run down Elijah. He's going to run behind him and catch him. And this is what he says. Let me first kiss my father and my mother, and then will I follow thee. Now, I know when we read that a lot of times, uh, I'll say for me, as I've read that in the past, uh, that don't sound good. Sounds like he wants to go back. He's not ready to follow him completely. But I believe the opposite is true. This kissing is the custom when departing. When you're leaving, uh, the kiss was a sign of departure in this day. In Genesis, I believe we can see a picture of that. Now, Jacob has married Rachel and Leah. Laban, their father, he's been down there laboring, if you remember. He's worked for Laban for 14 years in order to get Rachel, the daughter that he loved. And he's going to slip off one night. Jacob and his two wives and all of his children, they're going to slip off in the midst of the night and leave Laban behind. Well, Laban's going to run him down. And this is what he says. And hast not suffered me to kiss my sons and my daughters. Thou hast done foolishly in so doing. Laban says, I'd like to have kissed them by. I would have liked to bid them 
farewell. How did you bid farewell? Well, in this day, the kiss was a bid farewell. And a scripture we're all very familiar with, and you probably thought of as we were talking of it in the book of Ruth, the Bible says that Orpah kissed her mother-in-law so and, and Ruth clave. So Orpah kissed and Ruth clave. Orpah was saying, goodbye, I'm going back. And Ruth was saying, I'm staying with you. So the kiss was a sign of departure. He's, and this is what he's saying. Let me go back. Let me tell my mom and daddy where I'm going and we'll be gone. This is not like we see in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus is going to tell a man to follow him. And this is what he says in verse 21. And another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said unto him, Follow me and let the dead bury their dead. Now, that sounds cruel at face value, but you get down into what the words mean. He wouldn't say, and my daddy's dead, and I need to go put him in the ground, and then I'll follow you. He's saying, look, mom and dad, dad's still alive, and I want to stay there. I want to take care of him. I want to be with him. So let me stay with him till he dies, and once I get him buried, and then I'll follow you. Well, that ain't going to work. The Lord ain't got that much time. He's going to be going to the cross in just a year or two. So it's not, <clears throat> let me go bid him farewell. Let me go throw him in the ground. It's, look, in five or ten years, whenever things in order, and when I'm good and ready, that's when I'm going to follow you. Well, that's not what Elisha's saying. Elisha says, let, let me go and bid them farewell, and then I'm coming after you. So uh, uh, he's willing to leave it all. He's willing to leave his farm. He's willing to leave his mother or father in Matthew chapter 10. And I tell you, if we're going to follow the Lord, we're going to have to be willing to forsake all. In Matthew 10 verse 37, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. And again in Matthew 16, I guess a very familiar scripture. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. So there's going to have to be a relinquishing of self and everything that goes with self in order to follow the Lord Jesus. In order to be a follower of the Lord, he's got to come before mom and daddy, son or daughter, wife or husband. He's going to have to be the first and foremost being in our life the authority, and we're going to have to be willing to say farewell to them. If they come up in opposition to God, I'm going to have to be willing to follow God. Elisha says, I'm going to go kiss my mother and father goodbye, and I'm going to follow you. So notice this now. In 19, verse 19, Elijah does not say a word to Elisha. He casts his mantle, keeps on walking. Well, in 20, Elisha runs him down and says, let me go kiss my mother and father and I'm, I'm coming after you. And Elijah says, go back. For what have I done to thee? Now, is that not the truth? What had Elijah done? He cast a mantle on him and kept going. 
What had Elijah done? That, that would be something good for you to think on. Did Elijah do anything to him? Did Elijah say anything to him? Elijah said, look, just go back. I've not done a thing. I've not asked you to come. I've not asked you to follow. How did this come about in Elisha? It was in the heart that the call of God reached unto him. Elijah did not need to say anything. And as a matter of fact, Elijah tries to talk him out of coming. Go back again. Is that not what? In Ruth chapter 1, is that not what Naomi does to Ruth? She says, don't follow me. Don't come with me. Are you going to wait on me to have children? When I have children, it's going to be too late for you. And I'm too old to have children anyway. Go back. Just go back. I tell you that, that even the, the, the men and women of God in these pictures here are trying to tell them you just go back and quit following God. Don't come after me. Go back to your life like it was. But Ruth could not go back. And Elisha could not go back. That's the power of this call. Now, what you see today is man trying to talk man into coming to God. What you see here is man trying to talk man out of coming to God, and they are unable to do it. I tell you, there's a power greater than man working on the hearts of these. Now, when God calls, it won't be a man, but it'll be the inward man that God is drawing, and they will not be turned away. And so we'll finish. We're, we're a little over what we normally look at, but we're going to finish this chapter, Lord willing, today. So in verse 21 then, he returned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slew them and bowled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen and gave unto the people and they did eat. Then he arose and went after Elijah and ministered unto him. So Elisha is going to go back. He's going to kill two oxen, and he's going to take the yoke, that wood yoke that bound those two together, and he's going to build a fire out of that, and he's going to roast the flesh of these oxen. Now, that, this proves that this farm belonged to Elisha. How else could he kill the oxen if they weren't his? It would be illegal. He would be thieving. He would be killing another man's stock, and burning another man's equipment. But this belongs to Elisha. All of the oxen, all of the equipment, the farm that they're working on, this is Elisha's farm. He's a man of means. He's a man of wealth. He's a man of, of property. He's a man that's got some good. And yet he's going to kill two of them and roast the flesh. So he's cutting his tie to the farm. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, What things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. And he says he counted them as done, that he might win Christ. So in order for there to be a coming after God, there's going to have to be a cutting off, as the picture in the Old Testament, the circumcision, a cutting off of the old man and a separation from the old life. That comes from the call of God, the operation of God in the heart only. But he's going to cut his tie to the farm. 
And he's going to celebrate and make known the call that God's given to him. He's letting everyone around him know, look, God's called me and I'm going to be leaving. And we looked at Matthew's call earlier, Levi. In Luke chapter 5 verse 28, you can read there that after Levi was called, he made a great feast and called all of his publican friends to come. You know what Levi's doing? He's saying, look, this man Jesus has called me and I'm going to be following him and he's the son of God announcing the call and desiring his family, his friends, his co-workers to know the same God that he's been introduced to. Well, I believe that's what we see here. A celebration and an announcing of the call of God that's come upon Elisha. So he left the farm where he was the boss. He's going to bowl their flesh with the instruments, give to the people and they eat. He's going to leave. He arose and went after Elijah. He's going to leave the farm where he was the owner, where he was the boss, and he's going to minister. That word means to attend to, to contribute. He's going to become a servant. He's going to go from the chief to the servant. He's going to go from being first to being last. Because they that are last, they'll be first. In Romans chapter 6, verse 17, we were just here not too awful long ago in Sunday school. Verse number 17, But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart the form of doctrine which was delivered to you. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. And in Corinthians... For he that is called, this is 1 Corinthians 7, 22, he that is called in the Lord being a servant is the Lord's free man. Also, he that is called being free is Christ's servant. So the outward man who was chief, who was the head, who the, the flesh now, the Adam man, when we were sinners, he done as he pleased, he had his way, and he was first and foremost. Well, that outward man that was free to do as he pleased, when we came to Christ, he became a servant. And the inward man that was a servant and a slave to sin, he became free to serve God. And so in the flesh, Elijah, who was the head man at the farm, is going to become a servant to Elijah. He's going to come down in the flesh. But boy, in the spirit, he's being called into being one of, if not the, most powerful prophets in the Old Testament. <clears throat> so that they that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. And the call in, in 1 Peter, chapter number 4 now, Peter's speaking about that call of God. He that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. We went from a place that we were living according to our own lusts, and we became a servant to the righteousness of Almighty God. That happened by the call of the Lord. And so he arose and went after Elijah and ministered unto him. And so Elisha, 
He's not going to become the great prophet immediately, but he's going to learn under the tutorship of Elijah. God provided him a means to see, to hear, to learn, and to grow that he might step into his role when the time comes. In Ephesians chapter 4, he's done us the same way, not calling us and letting us go, but he's provided us a place, the church of the living God, that we might learn, that we might grow, and that when the fullness of time comes, we could go out and do our part in the kingdom of God. In Ephesians 4 verse 11, he gave some apostles and some prophets, some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So God provided, God provided a church with elders in it that had been through this way for a good time, that had testimony and experience and wisdom in a walk with the Lord that they might help them that are newly called. God provided Sunday school and teachers that could get up and, and explain and expound the word of God unto us helping us to see and understand the things that we're unable to see and understand on our own, things that we've never seen before, provided us a pastor to preach the gospel and instruct us and help us to grow all that we might grow and be more established in the truth of the word of God. God provided that so that when the time comes, we can do the will of God and carry out his call. Elisha's been called to be a prophet, but he's going to learn unto Elijah first. God's going to teach him. God's going to help him to grow. God's going to show his power to him. God's going to let Elijah be a help to him. But I say this as well, he's going to be a help to Elijah. They are mutually going to help one another in the walk with the Lord. And when the time comes, Elisha's going to be prepared to step I tell you, he steps right into the place of Elijah and it's almost like Elijah was never departed. Elijah parts Jordan and goes across. And I'm getting ahead of myself, but it goes so good right here. Elijah parts Jordan and they both go across and he's called up into heaven and Elisha parts Jordan and comes back. The power of God Step right down. He had a man that was called, prepared, and ready. Just as he did in Moses' day. There was Joshua, the son of Nun. Everywhere you look, over and over again, you see Moses and Joshua's there with him. You know what's happening? God is training and teaching a man that's going to carry on the work after they're gone. And thank God that God is still calling and helping men to come along in the day and hour that we're living in, that when we're gone, the work of God might be continued. But God help us while we're here to help them to grow, be established in the truth, that when their time comes, they'll be ready to face the devil and all the deceit that's in the world. I thank you for your attention. Sorry that we went a little longer today. Uh, just wanted to cover that. I thought the last two or three times we would get into the call of Elisha. So we've been introduced to him. He's been called of God. 
we're going to see uh, in the days to come the work of Elijah, the growing of Elisha, and the works of Elisha as well. Hope you enjoyed the study. Hope the Word of God's a help to you. We pray that you have a wonderful week in the Lord. Pray for us.